You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For a decade now, Hawaii scientists have been studying our fish populations, in particular species like Opakapaka and Onaga. The news is encouraging. We have a healthy stock of bottom fish. HPR's Kuvehi Rishi has been looking into these long-range studies and joins us now. Hi, Kuvehi. Aloha, Catherine. Uh, yes, as, as you mentioned, for the last decade, uh, scientists with uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration have been joining a local fishermen to sort to get an independent assessment of bottom fish stock. So they've been trying to perfect the way uh, the data that goes into these assessments, which are ultimately used by by fishing management agencies, right, to to limit or to set catch limits. And so, uh, for many many years, the assessments of bottom fish stock uh, relied heavily on fishery-dependent data, right? So when the fishermen bring in their catch, whatever they end up um, throwing there uh, onto the scale is what they uh, would use to assess whether or not a fishery is doing well. But we all know that there are other factors, uh, such as weather or market prices or even the cost of fuel that you need to pay to go out and fish for these uh, bottom fish that go uh, can sometimes skew the data on the actual abundance. And so 10 years ago, Benjamin Richards, a fish biologist with NOAA's Pacific Islands Fisheries Science Center, uh, said they teamed up with local fishermen represented by the nonprofit Pacific Islands Fisheries Group out of Kailua there on Oahu to develop an independent method of surveying. Here's Richards. We as scientists you know, understand the scientific method, understand survey design, understand the importance of consistency in sampling, doing the same thing year over year and doing the same thing in Big Island that we do in Kauai. But we're not fishermen. We don't spend day in, day out on the water in every different weather condition. We're not the experts in catching fish. But you're the experts. You need to tell us what that is. How many hooks are we going to use? How long are the leaders? How long are we going to fish in, in particular locations? And, you know, this, this survey method is what goes into the bottom fish fisheries independent survey in Hawaii, or BFISH uh, for short. And uh, the survey is unique in that it sort of buffered uh, the numbers from any of these market forces to, to give a more precise estimate of abundance. And uh, as you mentioned, what the assessment has found over the last 10 years is that, uh, as of right now at least, uh, bottom fish uh, stock in Hawaii is not experiencing overfishing. And uh, this will be important, as we mentioned, for management agencies. But another uh, interesting component of this independent surveying effort is the deployment of underwater video cameras uh, throughout the Hawaiian islands. Richard uh, explains how that works. They go down to the seafloor and they collect video for 15 minutes before being brought back up to the surface and moved to a new location. And then we, we process all of that video and so we can tell what species are there. We can count them. We can actually measure them. We can see the habitats that they're living in. And so that gives us a, a real nuanced understanding of how these fish are living and interacting in their habitat. Interesting. And, yeah, and this was, uh, you know, this is an, uh, one particular example I like uh, that they, wish, uh, they shared with me is uh, the bottom fish known as the lehi, uh 
hard-to-catch fish, but uh, fishermen over the 10-year span were only able to catch three, to hook three lehi in mm. that 10-year span. So uh, the, uh, when they looked at the uh, video footage, though, of these bottom fisheries, um, which is 75 to 400 meters deep is what we're talking about, they found uh, an abundance of lehi. And so, you know, when you have uh, the fishermen working alongside uh, the use of technology like this video survey, it really is uh, interesting how we can improve these stock assessments and, and really allow uh, for us to manage them uh, moving forward. Well, so the video then, I guess, is the closest thing we have to like a fish census, right? I mean, it, it just gives us this, exactly. this different That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's a different view uh, of what's really there. I mean, you know, it's so maybe the fish don't like the bait that the fishermen are using, but certainly <laughs> it, it sounds exactly. fascinating. And these are and these are uh, just some of the uh, I guess the data points that are brought into the overall stock assessment, which is a very it's a model using you know different algorithms, different data points, and these this is just sort of additional data that can go in uh, to having a more accurate uh, stock assessment. And Richard says uh, just last year they also added a citizen science component. So if anybody is interested, uh, there is uh, online. Uh, in um, app or a, a program called Ocean Eyes, and it's actually going to show some of this video uh, data, and uh, folks can identify what these bottom fish look like. So when they're out there, they can see, you know, I saw five lay or a school of, of uh, gindai over here, and that can also uh, be added to the stock assessment data. Really? So interesting in- stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, but thanks so much. So, yeah, hopefully we'll see more of this uh, video being used in future surveys. I definitely think so. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much. We have been talking with HPR's Ku'uvehirishi about the health of Hawaii's fish stock. You can find your stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Police overtime and how it affects an officer's pension. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra on the line today. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Yes. And so you've got a story about police overtime. And I must say, when I read this, my eyes got big. (laughs) (laughs) They've got some fat uh, pension uh, checks uh, in the works. Yeah, so we basically looked at um, the overtime that Honolulu police officers have been working. And when we matched up that overtime data with retirement dates, we saw that for a lot of officers, their overtime has just skyrocketed ahead of their retirements, and they really stand to reap extraordinary benefits because of it. Um, And it's called pension spiking. Um, And essentially what that means is for a lot of veteran officers, um, when they experience a big increase in their overtime and their final days on the force, um, that really fattens the pension payment that they receive for the rest of their lives. And pension spiking, I mean, it's legal, but lawmakers tried to curb this. Yes, it is totally legal. Um, In 2012, our state lawmakers did change the law to um, make it change the pension formula to not count overtime, but that was only for uh, future hires. So anyone hired after July 2012. For the folks 
um, hired before that, and that's still the majority of government employees. They can still spike their pensions as long as their employers allow them to. And based on my look at HPD, um, there's really nothing stopping anyone from doing it. Now, your story highlighted uh, a particular officer who (laughs) was making a staggering amount uh, in his pension. Yes. Uh, Corporal Thane Costa, now retired, um, he worked just an astounding number of overtime hours, something like 2,400 in his last year. And um, what that shakes out to in his pension is he's making more in retirement than the mayor makes in in the mayor's annual salary. Um, And Mr. Costa is uh, only 49 years old, so he'll be getting that for the rest of his life. Yeah, and your article says that he was, what, over $300,000. Right. And in just um, less than a year's time, um, someone leaked me that information last year that he, three quarters of the way through 2019, he'd already hit three hundred and forty grand, um, just as, as his base pay plus his overtime. And so his pension payments are based on those kinds of um, incomes. Well, th- th- that certainly... Uh, you know, is just, uh, like I said, mind-boggling um, because it's legal. Uh, and, uh, you know, w- what are uh, what are folks saying about this practice? Well, I reached out to the city council budget chairman, Calvin Fay, and he, of course, was the longtime speaker of the state house. Um, he really said there's not a whole lot that we can do. Our Hawaii constitution um, protects pensions as like a contract between the employee and the government. Um, so it's tricky to change the system to affect existing employees. But he said his best suggestion is to really double down on efforts to recruit and retain police officers so there's just less need for overtime in the first place. You know, we often hear a lot about unfunded liabilities and how um, the state has to really watch that. Uh, but, you know, uh, I'm sure the um, the unions, um, you know, are concerned about what other changes uh, might come? Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up the unfunded liability. So basically, the ERS would be paying for the overages of these inflated pensions, um, except also in 2012, there was a change in the law that they were allowed to start billing the employer. So in this case, Honolulu, for those excesses. So really, it's um, you and I, taxpayers, that are paying for the, the difference between what the person would have made in their pension and retirement versus um, that inflated number. And that billing amount has gone up pretty drastically in the past couple years. Um, in the last fiscal year, taxpayers um, paid $40 million. Right. So that's money, though, that maybe uh, or could have been used for something else, uh, but it's got, it's got to go to paying these pensions. Exactly. Because, uh, you know, the workers work the time um, and they're entitled to it. And uh, those are the rules. So we do have to pay that. And uh, talk about the audit that the city's calling for uh, looking into this issue. Yeah, so City Council Chair Tommy Waters has um, requested an audit of HPD overtime, and he did note in the resolution related to that that he, um, you know, noted that this overtime affects pension payments. Um, that audit won't be done until next spring, according to the auditor's office, but uh, the police chief, the, the interim chief, um, Roddy Vanek, said he's working with the auditor to look for solutions and ways that they can um, make this better. Because he did say the issue of pension spiking is unacceptable. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how well we stack up with other states, uh, you know, going forward. But interesting story. Uh, uh, And a lot of this information came out of a lawsuit that uh, Civil Beat 
you know, went, uh, took to court to get those records. That's right. That's right. The Civil Beat Law Center, we have um, we have to thank them for their hard work um, fighting for public records. We filed a lawsuit to get the data that made this story possible, um, showing how many hours each officer was working. And so when we matched that up with the retirement dates, um, it just raised an eyebrow for us. So thanks to the Law Center. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read uh, the story today, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, celebrating 50 years with a newly renovated lobby featuring stone and wood accents and a backdrop of Hawaii's flora by local artist Kamea Hadar. Alamoanahotel.com. Back when HBR was an idea starting to take hold, our founders chose to incorporate us as an independent, non-commercial service, a community-owned radio station without ties to any other institution. That fundamental decision from 1981 has had lasting impact. It keeps us free from outside influence in our programming and how we run the organization. 40 years of Hawaii Public Radio made possible by you. Thanks for believing. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, committed to the health and safety of guests, celebrating 50 years with a newly renovated pool deck offering sunset views, welcoming back Kama'aina and visitors. AlaMoanaHotel.com. You know, this past weekend, adoptions at the Hawaiian Humane Society got a boost thanks to Subaru's love in action, love promise to pets. We talked to Casey Nishimura, Serbco Pacific's communication director, about how, because of the pandemic, it has had to adapt its campaign of giving back to the community. Every year for the past over 10 years, actually now, Subaru Hawaii has done their Share the Love sales event in which Subaru donates $250 for every vehicle sold. But times have changed, things have changed, one of which is we don't have a lot of inventory. And so we really thought about how we can live to our mantra. Subaru's mantra is to be more than a car company. And so we really wanted to develop a community campaign that gave back to the community in the same way Share the Love did, but was independent of car sales. And so we focused on a bunch of community partners. You know, we have Paula Funga, who is our Subaru Hawaii ambassador. We told her about our idea, and she was all on board to spread awareness for different nonprofit organizations that fall into Subaru's love promises to care, help, learning, and pets. And so throughout the month of November into the first week of December, we are airing an episode on our website, that features a nonprofit that really exemplifies one of Subaru's love promises. And we are kind of tacking on a philanthropic aspect to it. So this past weekend, we did a free pet adoption day at all humane societies. We waived adoption fees, and we were able to get over 175 pets adopted from tortoises to dogs to birds. So we're really excited about that. And then for the remaining four weeks, we are going to be doing a matching donation program. So every nonprofit that we feature, um, if people donate to, to that nonprofit, we'll be matching up to $500 for each individual donation, up to $10,000 total to that nonprofit. So really hoping to double the impact to nonprofits. And similar in ways that we've also done matching gifts for Hawaii Public Radio as well. We thank you for that donation. But, you know, you have wonderful nonprofit groups on the list. Project Vision, we've done stories with them and the outreach that they do across the state. Yeah, they're an amazing organization. And, you know, we've worked with them in the past. And the services they provide to provide, you know, eye checkups and eye care services, especially in rural areas and 
people that might not even have a mobility solution to get to the eye doctor, you know, going to them is such an important thing, especially since losing sight could provide even more challenges to people that are already in an at-risk situation. So, you know, we're really excited to have partnered with them and a lot of the other nonprofits as well, Mana Maoli, you know, some that we didn't even really know about if it weren't for Paula, who really used her platform as well to really share the love in a lot of ways, no pun intended, through her platform. So it was just a perfect alignment for, for what we were trying to do and, and how we were trying to get back to the community. So for our listeners who don't know what Mana Maoli is all about, share with us what their mission is. So Mana Maoli, they have their Mana Mele project, which they have a mobile studio and really, you know, trying to cultivate the next generation of you know, Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander innovators, you know, musicians, educators, and largely in this particular project through the power of music, which Paula, of course, has a very strong and powerful, magical voice. And, you know, she's taken opportunities to mentor students there. But, you know, what better way to perpetuate culture and to bring attention to education than through things that people are passionate about, one of which I think we see often is music. So we're really excited as part of our Love's Learning Promise to work with them. Who else is on your list? We have Uihoole Maluo. They, they are based in Hilo, and they're doing a lot of work with fish pond restoration and, you know, also teaching, um, you know, applying kind of native Hawaiian cultural practices and, and mixing that with STEM or STEAM education, mm-hmm. um, you know, and really helping to understand how managing natural resources, you know, the way that native Hawaiians did, you know, back in the day, but then also applying modern science to, to kind of understand how to do it and maybe even possibly do it better. So... Um, that was a nonprofit, one of those that, you know, wasn't on our radar, and Paula brought it to the table, and we thought it was such a great fit for, for what we were trying to do. And then, of course, the, the fourth one is Child and Family Service, who, of course, is a statewide organization and does amazing work for youth and families, especially in at-risk situations, of which, you know, Paula has been very involved, and we've also been big supporters of them on our side as well. Our listeners should know that this is a way to be able to really double their contribution to one of these nonprofit groups that they want to help. That's right. Yeah. So from now, as soon as they hear this, until December 31st, Super Hawaii will be matching donations for those four nonprofits, Project Vision, Mana Maoli, Hui Ho'ole Maluo, and Child and Family Services, each individual donation up to $500. They can do that. They can learn more about the program. They can learn how to give by visiting our website, SubaruHawaii.com slash loveinaction. Folks here in Hawaii love their cars. <laughs> and Toyota is a, you know one of the brands that Surfco offers, but it's a very loyal customer base that you have, whether it's Subaru or Toyota or Lexus. Yeah, I mean, we're so grateful for all of our owners, whether, like you said, they buy a Toyota, Subaru, or Lexus, or even Chevrolets out of our Waipahu dealership. But, you know, we've been around now for over 100 years, Servco has, and we really know that we wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for the community. So campaigns like this for us are a no-brainer. And being a private company and having, you know, leadership that's willing to put their money where their mouth is, for lack of a better word, and, and really integrate ourselves in the community is really important to us. And so marketing campaigns, shouldn't just be about making money. It should be about helping the communities that have given us business. And that's what this is all about for us. And talk about, you know, what the pandemic has done, because the community need has just been so great in so many areas. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic has, you know, really changed the way people think about not just, I mean, of course, it's changed in the ways that we do business and how we sell cars 
how customers expect to purchase cars, how they expect to interact with us. But I think on, on another level, you know, even within our employee base or at the company, it's just changed, I think, understanding what's important, you know, and the community aspect of everything. You know, there was a lot of teamwork that needed to happen to shift businesses, pivot to different ways of doing business that I think changed perspectives for a lot of people. I mean, it was a it was a scary time. It's hard to believe that it was almost two years ago now, but it's a scary time. And we tried to step up by providing, you know, vehicles to get food to food distribution places, giving funds to healthcare organizations and nonprofits like Aloha Harvest who, you know, rescue produce or food from restaurants and get them to people in need. You know, anything that kind of where we could move, help move things to make things happen was, was a big focus for us throughout that pandemic. And I know that uh, I think the Auto Dealers Association, you know, has uh, come up with the forecast and the production level is not what it used to be, you know, with the COVID supply and demand issues with chips, computer chips and all. But how's Surfco doing just in general? Yeah, the, the supply chain issue is definitely a challenge for us. We haven't been able to grow as much as we'd like just because of the lack of inventory. But I think what customers, what we've heard anyway, you know, of course, there are situations where people need a vehicle right this second. But I think there are also a lot of people, and we said, you know, like as you mentioned, people love their cars, that it presents a very unique opportunity where we are still getting vehicles. Um, And what we're finding is that people do enjoy being able to customize their vehicle or build their vehicle to how they want and are willing to wait for that experience. You know, it kind of is part of that shift and change of I don't just need to buy what's on the lot right now. I can actually just build it to the specs I want, you know, whether that's their technology package, their safety features, and then have it come in same color and specs that they want. And so we've been really focusing on on just serving our customers in the ways that we can right now, although, you know, getting them a vehicle right away might not always be the option at this point. Right. But I guess they figure it's probably worth waiting for if they can get it. A lot of people will wait for their Tacoma is what we're finding. (laughs) All right. Well, we certainly appreciate you carving out time to talk about this, just about how you know, you folks are surviving in this pandemic and how you're helping others in the community to get through this rough patch. Thank you so much for having us. We're, we're really excited about this campaign and we're really hoping that, that your listeners as well as other people in the community will help us support these nonprofits. All right. Well, thanks again. Aloha. Thanks, Catherine. That was Casey Nishimura, Communications Director for Serve Co. Hawaii, talking about the Subaru Love Project that has been modified to help fundraise for some very worthwhile nonprofit groups in our community. The auto dealer is donating $50,000 in matching funds during November and December. You know, this week, Iolani Palace is decorated in honor of King David Kalakaua's birthday, and visitors are to be treated to new additions to the historic royal residence. We sat down with Hilo designer Iris Viacrucis, who recreated King Kalakaua's coronation uniform for the event. The linen fabric and gold embroidered trim for the dress whites came as far away from uh, as Paris, Pakistan, and England. Uh, Via Crucis is credited with recreating Queen Liliuokalani's peacock gown and others for uh, Queen Kapi'olani. He says the King's Project took more than a year to pull together. Kalakawa was a member of the Freemasons, and the new additions to the museum include a decorative garment described as a Masonic apron. It's two items. So one is his 
coronation uniform is basically what it is in the throne room that you saw, which is the white coat with the sky blue. Um, it's called Le Ciel or the sky or heaven, translated in French. And also the Masonic regalia. So it has the apron and the sash, and of course it's presented in its formal setting with a tuxedo. And again, I showed pictures so people could actually see. So the original one is lost, we don't know what happened to it, and so you were just able to recreate this based on the pictures? Yes, there is actually a lot of puzzles, um, just like with the other gowns, where there's some existing pieces that could actually get some information from. Like, for example, people are asking me, is like, is that the size of the king? And, and how did you know? There actually is information from his passport, for one. One of the clues was he was photographed next to one of the tall jars in the palace. And that actually exists. And say so they'll take a tape measure and say, okay, he's, you know, he's about 5'9", almost like a six foot. And he's even looked taller because of the way that he combed his hair. It's like, you know, in the way that he styles it, you know, add another two inch to him. So when he visited Europe, a lot of the, the comment um, about him was, oh, he's really tall, you know, as opposed to the queen, um, you know, would be noted, oh, you know, she's, she has a stout <laughs> stature. So that's why you will see it in the gowns that were recreated that it actually, you know, are they really that small? <laughs> so, and that again was from existing gowns that I actually was taking the measurements from at the Bishop Museum. And you had some of the trim work recreated in Pakistan. Yes. Where some of the original stuff came from, I think. Yes. So that's one of the, again, today I actually have the Masonic group. Um, so there's, um, you know, a lot of enthusiasm seeing it come to life and things. And they even giving me additional information. So I'm missing the, the metal on it. And they said, oh, no, we could actually go ahead and help you get that. So um, I'm hoping... Again, hint, hint, maybe, you know, get that donated to the palace to complete the look of the regalia of the king. And so what did it mean uh, for you to be able to do the king's uniform? Because you've done uh, the queen's peacock dress, yes. you know, and some of the other gowns. It's, a, it's sort of like a completion. The palace itself is actually, you know, was the king. So it was actually all in his inspiration. He traveled all over the world, and even before he was king, he was already traveling. And learning from all of his trips in regards to how to represent yourself as the head of your country. And that's where all of those different images and different motifs that a lot of people take for granted. He wrote a book, which is, you saw it in the library, which is the myth and legends of Hawaii which it's told in stories and that that came to him as a dream from an old man that told him that you need to tell the stories of you know the legends and the myths of Hawaii and so he called all the kupunas all over to actually help him you know extract all those information and wrote, and wrote that book and one of the main things in that book was actually the kumulipu which is again the duality of things is actually very important to him so there's always two elements to certain things that he actually wanted to depict. So you see that in the coronation um, suit um, in the jacket where the cuffs and the collar actually have two different um, ferns, the palapalai and palaa, that was actually, you know, embroidered. And that's where that embroidery actually even, you know, is sketching it and designing it for the embroiderer in Pakistan. So I, I mentioned the king traveling all over the world. 
the 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 jacket the the uniform you know a lot of the pieces came from all over the world as well so you have the sash um, ribbon which is a grow grain ribbon a french ribbon is what it's called it actually came from france and then you have the pakistani embroidery the belt on it is actually a hob belt military belt that actually came from england and then all of the metal works on the royal order actually came from the mainland. So the circumnavigating the world is actually all in that essence of <laughs> constructing the king's uniform as well. And, you know, we also sat down uh, with uh, Paula Khanna, the executive director of the Friends of Iolani Palace, to talk about the festivities planned to mark Kala Akawa's birthday. Things are more subdued due to the pandemic. Because of COVID, we can't do what we'd like to do, which is the big ceremonies that we'd have with the royal societies and the reviewing of the royal guard. But the bunting is up in his honor, which I think is so beautiful. And we're going to have the king's guard. The royal guard will be hosting on the front lanai. And then we're just welcoming people to see the newest items that were recreated for Kalakaua. And it's part of the Ali'i Garments Project. And so I think it was really appropriate that in the week of his birthday, we can share what he may have looked like on the day he had his coronation ceremony, and also as a mason, what his Masonic apron looked like. And so we're really excited to do that. And so what can you tell us about the restoration project of, let's say, the coronation pavilion at this point? The Coronation Pavilion Restoration Project is finished. Uh, we, Mahalo Nui Loa Hawaii Tourism Authority, they gave us the funding to not only take care of bees in the palace, but to restore the Coronation Pavilion. There was a lot of concrete spalling that was just, it was in really bad shape and really a safety hazard. And that took a lot of time and money, but it's, it's a sound structure again, so we're so excited about that. We received a, a big grant from the National Park Service, um, nearly a half a million dollars, with a match from um, the State Department of Land and Natural Resources Parks Division to work on the roof. And so, to me, that's the most important thing in, in bringing this um, humble home of our Lee up to par is to fix the roof. And so we're really excited about that. And then is there anything you can share just about future use of the pavilion? We're still trying to figure that out right now on what we're going to do with the pavilion. Um, I think we're going to, at some point, be able to make it available for some events when people rent here, but we're also definitely going to make it available during Onipa'a and big events to have the speeches that not only we've had in the past decades, but we also, I'm sure, had during the time of the Hawaiian Kingdom and, and the territory as well. So it, it'll be open on a case-by-case -case basis. And then as far as resuming night tours? We are looking to return to night tours at the end of this year in honor of Queen Kapi'olani. We're still working it out. They're probably going to be somewhere around the 26th, 27th, maybe even the 28th. We are very fortunate to have a grant from the Office of Hawaiian Affairs that's going to help us to put these on. We're just trying to work out the logistics in this COVID time on what we can do and we can't do. And so basically everybody is welcome to come and see the addition of Kalakaua's finery. <laughs> yeah, come and see the new things on display. We're open Tuesday through Saturday. You should go online and look at our tickets. It's time ticketing. And so we kind of sell out quickly because we're operating only at about 50% capacity of what we were pre-COVID. So things sell out fast, but we just 
would like to ask everybody to come look. It's always neat to see something new. And when we had the coronation gown previously, that was beautiful. But now to see the coronation suit of the kings next to it, to me, I think what we've done in the throne room is really bring you to the coronation itself. There's the crowns, there's the thrones, and there's the king and queen in, in their beautiful garb that they wore on that day. So I, I think it's just a, a really exciting thing to see. Come and become a member of the Friends of Ilani Palace, make a donation, just help make a difference in taking care of this really precious place. That was Paula Kana, Executive Director of the Friends of Iolani Palace, inviting the community to visit as the historic residence is decked out to mark uh, King Kalakaua's birthday. The replica gowns and uniforms of the Ili'i add a special touch during the holiday season. Be still, my This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, here's a bird that everyone will likely be familiar with. It is the mina. Mina birds are everywhere, literally. They have been declared one of the world's worst invasive species. And we've got their song for you today, thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's your Manu Minute. Anyone who has spent more than a day or two in Hawaii has probably noticed our mina birds. They seem to be everywhere there are people, including residential areas, parks, cities, towns, gardens, and beaches. Just about the only place you don't find them much is in our native forests. Common minas are about nine inches long and chocolate brown with a yellow bill and legs and bright yellow bare skin behind their eyes. Both sexes in minas look alike to humans at least, and unlike many bird species, will mate for life. They can often be seen flying in pairs back to giant roost trees just before sunset, where they join hundreds of other minas in noisy congregations, perhaps exchanging information about the foraging success that day. Minas are native to Asia, and were introduced to Oahu from India in the mid-1800s to control cutworms and other insects that had become bad agricultural pests. The minas were apparently successful at this, but then expanded on their own to all the other Hawaiian islands within the next few decades. While they're both intelligent and amusing to watch, they have become pests themselves in the eyes of many people, as they can be extremely noisy and dirty, particularly around roost trees and cities. Also, they've been known to play a role in spreading noxious weeds, as well as bird parasites and disease. There's even an account of them setting fire to a building with a burning cigarette. Fortunately, because they rarely enter Hawaiian forests, they don't appear to pose much of a threat to our remaining native bird species. Like other mina species, the minas we have in Hawaii can become excellent mimics of human language and can learn dozens of words if properly trained, especially from a young age. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art and its Artists of Hawaii Now exhibition, welcoming the community to a series of conversations, artists' talks, and hands-on workshops. Details at honolulumuseum.org. Need a break in your day? Whether you're in your car, your kitchen, or still in bed, Manu Minute brings you the rich sounds of Hawaii's native forests and shorelines. Learn about the lawn-legged ayo, the clever alala, and more as we listen to the birds' unique songs and talk to experts about their conservation. Get the Manu Minute delivered to your phone or mobile device. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You know, Oahu is Hawaii's most populated island, and while things like traffic and crowded beaches are uh, some of the downsides to living here, there are some perks, especially when it comes to entertainment. Of course, the big concerts come here. We have University of Hawaii football, and we have more movie theaters than all the other islands combined. And if you're looking for something new to do, we've got some innovative local business owners opening some unique places for fun like something called Break and Anger in Kaka'ako. The Conversations producers uh, Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Savannah Herman-Pote got the opportunity to tour the facility, one of the few places in the islands where you can break things and get away with it. Have you ever been so mad that you just wanted to break something? Yeah, we've all been there, especially over the last 20 or so months. Nonprofit Mental Health America recommends a handful of ways to deal with anger and frustration. Taking a breath, changing your surroundings, writing it down, or exercising are all great ways to cope with anger. Also, you can break stuff, and we've got just the place. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Hi, I'm Russell. Yes, nice to meet Hi, you. Nice to meet you. These yeah, are okay. my other producers. This is Lillian. Nice, nice to meet and you. And Savannah. Okay. This is Cody. This is Mark. Oh, hey. Hello. Hey, yeah. nice to meet you. Nice. Yeah. Nice. All right, come on in, guys. So this is yeah, this is our entrance. So this is all artwork that uh, our clients never came back and picked up. Uh -huh. So we took what we wanted, thought it was really cool, and we put it up on the wall. So, and this is our, our yes. hall of rage, we call. Oh, nice. So whenever someone has like a real breakthrough and just, you know, for whatever reasons, just kind of goes for it, we make them sign it and we put it up here. It's called Break and Anger, and it's Hawaii's first rage room. It's located in Kaka'ako and is the brainchild of owners Mark Galki, Cody Jarrett, and Carolina Pallotti. Who was the first one to have the idea to do a rage room? That was me. Is it yeah. is it something you came up on your own, or was it something? No, it was something. It, it was something I watched a video on yeah. the night before. I saw Cody at his other warehouse, and he was asking like, "Hey, is there anything, anything you want to think about doing, like different kind of business?" Because we're both in construction, and um, and I said, "You know, last night I just watched this video. Seems interesting." And and then yeah, it grew from there. And I think the next day. He was like, are you serious about it? <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, let's, you know, why not? How long did it, it take to go from that idea to finding your, your spot to putting it together? When was that? Last November? Yeah. I think. And we moved. We started in March last year. Yeah. So it was last November when we came up, I think, when we were dealing with the concept. Yeah. And then things just... When, once we pulled the trigger, it kind of just started evolving and falling into place. Oh, cool. yeah. So we wanted to do something fun and yeah. different. You know, we've been in the same business for so long, doing construction work. 
and we say, well, we can build this, and we can make this happen, and it could be a lot of fun. And our first plans was just small, you know, just maybe one room, go in there and break some stuff. And then, you know, as we started looking for different spaces, we started coming up with different ideas and concepts, and then we realized, oh, we also need to be able to market this, and we don't have any marketing skills. And then that's where Carolina came in, and we brought her in, and she came up with the great idea of making it more about uh, awareness, yeah. understanding your anger, how to deal with your anger, coping with anger. And we saw that as being able to sustain our business as opposed to just the fad. Yeah. Something come in, break some stuff and walk out, but actually make it more sustainable. Yeah. Give, put some meaning behind it. And also giving back to the community was always a big part of it. So with that combination, we found this space and then we fell in love with it almost instantly realize we can work with it and it, the rest just kind of evolved from there and it's exactly what you think it is a place with rooms where you can just break stuff safely of course we do give them strict rules on what they can do and what they cannot do so we have a board here and everyone gets kind of the same instructions you know they have to wear their equipment it's very important that they use their safety equipment on at all times we give them helmets and and face shields and like Carolina said, the overalls, they wear gloves, they have to wear closed-toed shoes. They can only use the weapons that are provided in the room, so we give them baseball bats, frying pans, golf clubs are super popular, bowling balls, anything you can use, sledgehammers, crowbars, but they have to use that. They can't use any part of their body, so there's no kicking, no punching, uh, no hitting anything. And then we have safety zones within the room, so we only allow one person to smash at a time. So we don't want several people in it because sometimes things go flying, right. bats slip out of hands, that kind of thing. So we have, we have uh, the ground is marked. If you look down into the room, you can see where there's, when you first walk in, there's a green section, then there's a yellow section, and then a red section. So the green section is the safety zone when you walk in. And there is where you stay back, and when it's not your turn, and you can pick your music. There's an iPod in each room, so you can choose your own music or use the playlist that we provide. And while your, your, uh, your, your friends are in the red zone doing the, the smashing, and then they take turns doing that. And the yellow zone's kind of a caution area because debris goes flying, and we always make them aware of your surroundings and, and what you're doing. And if you also notice, we have two target walls in each room. So the target walls, on this room in the zoo, there's the brick wall, and on this room in the jungle, there's the big wooden wall. That's where you throw and swing and direct all the debris towards. So we try and keep it limited to those two target walls. Um, and only breaking is done in the red area. But it, other than that, there's no rules. <laughs> and what would a trip to break and anger be if we didn't get a chance to try it out? So, I got suited up, I put on a full-bodied coverall, like something you might see a mechanic or an oil rig worker wear. I was also given a pair of safety gloves and a hard hat with a full face shield to put on. And then, I got to choose my objects of rage. So you get a grocery cart, Oh, okay. you pick out your breakables, you load yeah, so it into the cart. All packaging has a set of breakables included. Okay. And then when they come here, they pick the ones they want to break. Okay. And then we always encourage them to ride on the breakable. So you kind of break it with an intent, you know, make them like give a meaning to it. 
But also you have on the other yeah, side yeah, of the breakable. You things on like a plate uh -huh. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like breakups, ex names, boss name, anything that is like you really, really want to let it go, let out. And then we have a lot of other breakables that you can add on, you know, by yourself as a, in a group, you know, that you pay extra to break. Where, yeah. do, where, where does your inventory come from? Is it looks like it comes from like thrift shops or it something like that? It comes from various places. The majority of the of our stuff, the small stuff, uh, comes from, a lot of it's donated, but also comes from Goodwill before it goes to the dump. Okay. So they have their outlet store right here, their yeah. main hub of our Veritania. So whenever all the other stores, there's stuff that doesn't sell, they send it there, yeah. and then they kind of put it in a you know just big free for all bins, like in for outlet prices. Yeah. And then when that doesn't sell, they send it to the dump. So basically, I say before you send it to the dump, yeah. let me get oh, okay. it. Yeah. And so we've got a uh, we worked out a deal where they give us a big break on it, and um, we take it and yeah. smash it and break it down before uh -huh. it goes to the, to the dump site. And it's interesting. We find some really cool stuff actually. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 It's some, some really beautiful things. Sometimes I even tell the clients, don't be attached. If you see it, don't be sorry. Go break it. Our motto here is you buy it, you break it. <laughs> Once you stock up on the items you want to break, you're led to one of their two rage rooms where they go over the rules again and help you get set up safely. In the rooms, there's a setup for your phone. If you want to record your session and there's a stereo system that allows you to choose the music you want to listen to as you break stuff. On the walls hangs the instruments of rage. Frying pans, lead pipes, a golf club. Of course, I went straight for the sledgehammer. Wait, one, smash! <laughs> 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 I feel great. <laughs> Opa! Ah. Something about glass breaking, right? Yeah. Yes. It has that sound. A classic ball against a wall kind of girl, but that nutcracker really felt—it felt like I was taking something down. What was really interesting and what I didn't expect is it's not just what you're smashing; it's how you're smashing it. So you have a sledgehammer, you have a lead pipe, you have a pan, and all of that combined with—do you want to throw it against the wall? Do you want to just hit it until it's not getting up anymore on the table? It is, there's a lot more versatility in what you can do than just smash. Yeah. Feel good, I feel calm. So I was in there probably a total of five minutes breaking a wooden nutcracker figure, a few plates, a rum bottle. Mark, Carolina, and Cody also told us about the experiences some of their customers shared with them. Some of them were able to channel their anger and their pain through the destruction. For others, it was a bonding experience. There are also safe viewing areas where you can watch people in the rage rooms. They said for some, just watching stuff get smashed is entertainment enough. And the great thing about breaking anger is that rage rooms and breaking things aren't the only thing they offer. There's also the opportunity to process emotions through creation in their splatter room. So everyone gets a canvas and an art kit. 
and then they can also uh, additionally buy some neon paint guns. Uh, these are uh, washable paints, uh, safe paints. Uh, um, they're designed for parties mm -hmm. and throwing at each other and making a big mess. So basically it's a big adult playground where you can come in and we have music normally playing here so they can choose their own music and you're welcome to come on in. And they set up, they get their canvas and they set it up and they can do all kinds of different art. We have a spin art wheel so they can do kind of do this and do some interesting cool creative ideas. A lot of the stuff that is broken, that gets broken, that we think would be fun and used as templates and things like that, they can certainly use to create their art and just have a good time and just make a mess and not have to worry about cleaning it up. Man, it was just so much fun. And experiences start out at about $60 per person for the rage rooms and about $50 per person for the splatter room. And you can upgrade your experience depending on what you want to break and how long you want to break stuff for. So what was your favorite part? I enjoyed meeting the carousel horse in the splatter room. There's just like so much interesting stuff that might have gone to the landfill that has like a second life in this space. Yeah. I appreciated that. I mean, aside from being able to break stuff, I just enjoyed the idea where there's that there's a space where whatever emotion you have, it's okay. And I really enjoyed talking to Mark, Cody, and Carolina about their process. They were super friendly. The place feels like it has a, a family atmosphere. What I really liked was the shelf full of stuff to break. <laughs> <laughs> Going shopping for stuff that you're not going to take home and keep and have to keep safe. This is the exact opposite, right? It's the stuff that you... You don't have to be afraid to just liberating, perhaps, and destroy. Big thanks to Mark, Cody, and Carolina for giving us a tour of Break and Anger. Break and Anger has been open for four months, and the owners say traffic coming through their business has been pretty steady since day one. For more information on Away's first rage room, check out the link on the conversation page of our website later today. That does it for us now, but tomorrow we plan to hear more about the auto outlook. Have you had problems buying a car this year? Tell us about it through our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.